Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and it's a real honor to have our next guest join the podcast. You know, in some ways, I found this podcast has been a giant love letter to Mitt and uh, Frazier. And now it's our privilege to hear from a member of that dynamic duo. Frazier, welcome. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Christian, thank you for doing this. I've been listening to many sessions and it brings back so many wonderful memories. Thank you. Well, thank you uh, for actually helping to create all of those wonderful memories for so many of us who worked on the games here in Salt Lake. You may have noticed that uh, so many of our guests have said that either it was the pinnacle of their career or it was the best games they ever worked on. And many of them attribute that to you and to Mitt. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Before we dive into the memories, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days and where you're joining us from? Yeah, I'm actually in, in Alpine, Utah. And what I'm doing today, it's it's a mixed bag of different efforts. I'm semi-retired from my company, Sorensen Capital. I still work half-time there, and I dabble in a few businesses. But most importantly, um, I am leading the effort to help bring another games back to Salt Lake. So everybody listening, uh, we'll get the band back together sometime later this decade and uh, hopefully do it again. Well, I'm uh, cheering for it as much as anyone. And and for many of us who have aged a bit since the last games, you know, we look at that to be a wonderful capstone to our careers to be able to to help Salt Lake deliver another games. And I think they would be amazing. It would be nice to see this old band get back together again, but with some new talent. There's incredible talent here locally and uh, also throughout the world that I think could really contribute to an amazing games here in Salt Lake. Yeah, people ask me, uh, why would you want to do this again? Uh, we came off as heroes last time. Everything worked. It was incredibly successful. But for me, it was, like many others, the pinnacle of my career for many reasons, uh, particularly working with the exceptional people. And so having the opportunity to do that again and then train the next generation, because I see many future games in uh, for Utah going forward, and we need to train that next generation. One thing I'm curious about is we're hit with this unprecedented pandemic. As you know, the Tokyo games have been postponed by a year. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in this particular industry, and that also provides interesting opportunities to perhaps reimagine what an Olympic Games might look like in the future. I'm curious how, in your view, COVID has impacted not just your own uh, you know, personal life and professional uh, work that you're doing, but also um, your thoughts about the event space and, and uh, what opportunities there might be to do some innovation. Well, COVID uh, caught us all by surprise. And, and as we look at navigating through this these last few months and many months probably yet to come, it is uh, a highly uncertain time where you take a step back and you reflect on what's most important. Uh, for example, our son went through uh, COVID uh, for two months and it was dicey for a while. And you recognize what's most precious to you and that's friends and family. Um, and I regard uh, Team 2002 as part of my family. Uh, and so being able to do this again would be fantastic. 
Now, as we look at how COVID would impact the future games, um, I, I think Tokyo, if they're able to pull it off next year, will become even more meaningful because it will unite the world and say, wow, we survived that. That was the most difficult thing we've ever gone through. And here we are. I'm, I'm so hopeful that Tokyo will be a celebration of humanity uh, uniting again. Uh, when we look at our opportunity to host the games again, whether it's 2030 or 2034, it's really that special opportunity to unite the world as we did post 9-11. And that's a wonderful cause. And when I look at the dynamics of hosting and innovating again, we say, what can we do differently? Uh, I'm very excited that there are uh, new sport disciplines that we could uh, host even something downtown like Big Air or something like that would be so much fun to be creative and do something differently. The big element that we will have to address going forward is risk because uh, postponement or cancellation now has surfaced as something real. And we can't leave the Utah taxpayers holding the bag. And so how do we go through uh, insurance and risk mitigation? That will be a massive new component of any hosting of future games. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we'll have some time, I guess, a little bit of time to try to figure those things out. But those are absolutely critical. One thing that COVID has taught us um, is that we can actually work remotely and make much more efficient use of space. And organizing committees typically uh, grow substantially and require a lot of space in order to operate. And uh, maybe we can be a little bit more efficient. I do want to say um, I hope your son recovers uh, fully from the from the COVID. I've just read reports. I don't know anyone. I don't have any family members, I should say, um, that have gone through that experience. But it sounds to me like it's an incredible ordeal. Yeah, it sure was because the healthcare community doesn't really know what to do. So you're left to navigating it in your own, on your own. And the one thing we did not want to do is have our son intubated because we knew that that could just be a downward spiral. So we navigated around that with oxygen and various other things. And he's doing very well right now. We actually took him to Lake Powell and uh, celebrated his, his recovery. Now, I want to comment on the office space and working remotely. I'm a huge fan of that. And in fact, people will uh, recognize this pattern that I have, but I'm working on the budget for the future games. And I went through office space rent and I just dramatically reduced it and said, we can work remotely, but we will have need for team gatherings. There's something about being together periodically, but certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, not required. So uh, that's one of the creative elements to say, how do we create the new work environment so people can collaborate, they can work from home, but also assemble together to get that team unity that we all really loved. It's funny, we talk about office space. We've actually received a lot of positive feedback on the old SLOC office space there in the old American Towers, now Wells Fargo building, being very open, um, very easy for people to, to meet and get together. So people have very fond memories of the space uh, even back in those days. And speaking of those days, maybe we should uh, take the time to wind the clock back a little bit, hop in the time machine and go back uh, 20 years or so. 
to get us into that mood, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were doing before joining the organizing committee and just how you found yourself working for SLOC? Well, I had uh, started a private equity firm called uh, Alpine Consolidated, and we were focused on uh, building companies through acquisitions and taking them public at the same time. And we were just working, we we're just wrapping up our third project. We had been highly successful and I really liked the lifestyle because we'd work for nine months and then take three off. And, and I was just coming into my uh, take time off period and uh, Mitt was installed as the CEO. And I thought, wow, if anybody can do this, it's Mitt, uh, having worked with him in the past. A uh, couple of months into his uh, work, he called me up. I think it was March of 1999. And he said, he called me up and we exchanged some pleasantries. And then he said, Fraser, I'm looking for a chief operating officer. And I knew exactly what he was, he was uh, calling me about. And I said, well, um, you're looking for somebody semi-suicidal because it was so troubled back then. And so difficult, and I empathize so much with the people who had to go through that period. And I said, I'll, I'll think of some names and I'll call you back. And he said, well, what about you? And I said, heck no. Um, but then he twisted my arm a little bit and said, well, just come visit me downtown. I knew exactly what he was up to, and, and I was inclined not to do it. And I was visiting with my dad one Saturday morning, and uh, he just said, Fraser, it's time to be of service. And that was it. Um, I left my career, left my company, and joined SLOC and viewed it as a sacrifice. But what I didn't realize, it wasn't a sacrifice at all. It was the best thing I possibly could have done. That's so interesting that you viewed it almost as a call, uh, a call to serve Yes, it really became that. And that's just one of the elements that made it so special because we were all working together for a purpose that was bigger than just a business. It was about uh, bringing the world together under the umbrella of sport. And so that purpose was a foundation to everything. And when I came into the organization, I knew zero about the Olympics which is a little bit intimidating. You walk into an organization at a senior level and, and you know nothing. So what I, the way I approached it, um, I said, I'm going to listen and learn for two months. So I interviewed about 30 people and these interviews would go one to two hours. And I just learn about them, their lives, their family, their career, their approach, to their job, what their job was, what the challenges were they faced. And so I was building this foundation of knowledge and it started with the people. And the first thing I realized is, wow, these people are extraordinary and we have the opportunity to make this exceptional. And then um, the other thing I did to build that foundation of knowledge is we went through a budget exercise which we had to do. And that was about two months in and it lasted about two months. And I went through every penny of the budget to understand what is it that makes up putting on a games. And that served me, I, I can remember numbers pretty well. And that served me all throughout 
my tenure at Slock because I knew where all the money was and how it worked and the different components to the organization. And then the other thing I did is I reviewed each function in detail. What's their job? How does it work? And how do all these pieces fit together? And so I built that foundation of knowledge to be able to uh, serve the organization going forward rather than being somebody who just comes in and the first day starts um, putting out directives and orders and things like that. Uh, I flipped it around and said, I need to learn from these exceptional people. Let me build a foundation of knowledge. Let me become part of them. And then I can help them with their jobs going forward. So ultimately, what did you want to accomplish as the chief operating officer of the Salt Lake 2002 organizing committee? Well, my... I, th- I think the bottom line of my job was to make sure we had exceptional people. Um, number two is that I could put in place an environment to help them succeed. And I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, the third thing was to put in a fast decision-making process so that they could move ahead. They weren't hindered waiting for decisions and when would this be done and how would it be done? And then let them run. Um, And so to put the, the first thing was exceptional people. What I realized when we got there, when I, when I arrived is that we had a fabulous team already. Now, there were a few misfits that we needed to uh, adjust over time, but by and large, wow, what a team. And then my job was to then go out, search the world for additional people to bring in, which I did going down to Australia and Atlanta and and various places to, to help assemble that team, which I did. And then with that team, one of the things we needed to have was team DNA. And as chief operating officer, I, I realized that uh, in many or in most organizations that I'd seen, there's this silo mentality where people have their functions and they protect their turf and knowledge is power and stuff like that. And my job was to ensure that that was not the case at SLOC. And so we break down the barriers. And then within that team orientation, I was trying to um, create a collaboration with the people I worked with such that when my job, the way I viewed my job was to help my people succeed. And so when I'd have my one-on-one interviews and I had 10 uh, people that reported to me, I would say, what do I need to do to help you succeed? What resources do you need? What decisions do you need made, et cetera, et cetera? Because if you succeed, the organization's going to succeed. And then I extended that and I said, okay, person XYZ, your job is to make your colleagues, to help your colleagues succeed as well. And they said, oh, that's a different way of thinking. And then finally, I... um, in, in helping them develop that team DNA and critical thinking and development, typically people would come in in our one-on-ones and they'd have a long list of items they wanted to go over. And usually there many of them were decisions that needed to be made and they would be in their organizations. And early on, I would help, I would make some of those decisions. 
But later on, when they would come in, they would start asking a question about a decision. And I knew what the question was going to be. I knew what the three alternatives were, and I knew what the probably the best alternative was, just in my opinion. But instead of spouting out an answer, I would say, what do you think? And I would coach them through the decision-making process. Well, what do you think the alternatives are? So let's weigh these pluses and minuses. So by the time we got to games time, they didn't need me. They, they were making all the decisions. They knew how it worked, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, um, on the fast decision-making process where it was multifunctional, um, we developed the COR process, which was a um, really a key platform because in so many organizations, whether it's Olympics or regular businesses, People don't know how decisions are made and they go into this ether or they need a decision and it takes months and months. And meanwhile, they're paralyzed and things like that. And we said, no, every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, we're going to have the COR meeting, which is any decision that needs to be made can be brought to that body, bring the data, bring in people affected and we'll make a decision and boom, let the people run. We have exceptional people, get them working together and let them do their great job. That's how I viewed my responsibility. I do have a question for you, and that has to do with the guiding principles. In a lot of corporations, things like guiding principles or mission, vision, values, they, they're out there, they're on the website, but uh, people don't really live by them. But I felt like at SLOC, we did. I remember having those guiding principles on my desk, you know, uh, in that little plastic thing. They were there. I'm curious how the guiding principles came about, like uh, how how they were developed and implemented and how how you got the organizing committee on board to actually incorporate those principles in their everyday work. Well, you, you don't develop those right at the beginning because you don't know enough about the organization. And so these evolved over time. Mitt obviously led, and uh, just a sidebar with Mitt, we all know this, but he is the real deal. He's an exceptional leader. He was my partner. I loved working with him. It, and and he led off on um, putting together these principles. And I gave him input and we kind of reiterated them several times around. And we went to the senior management team and got their input and and they were great in in helping us direct things and and I'll remember number 5 in particular is have fun and that was something that Mitt infused throughout the organization where there was every meeting would start with a joke usually came from Mitt and usually they were almost laughable but uh nevertheless he he wanted people to really enjoy their experience and I think that those guiding principles, such as putting athletes first and fiscal responsibility and things like that, they permeated throughout the organization and were embodied in MIT. And I tried to follow his lead. And one of the things I really wanted to do was make uh, allow everybody to have an exceptional experience that not only would we have successful games, which is that is 
foundational to a great experience, but people could grow, they could achieve, they could uh, run fast with their own entrepreneurialism in their different functions. And so I think that team orientation was endemic throughout all of the uh, uh, guiding principles and really came out. All right. I want to come back to all this foundational work that you did. You mentioned that you met with a lot of people, you studied the landscape, you you took in as much knowledge as you could collect in the first couple of months uh, of your tenure there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Once you've gathered all that and you survey the landscape that you're in, what's the big risk? You know, you, you look at the games and everybody has risk registers and things. Uh, when you looked at it from, you know, a very high level uh, executive perspective, what was the big risk for the games and how did you plan to mitigate the risk? Well, the biggest risk is the only amateur, the only amateurs at the Olympics are those putting on the games. And that was true of me. Now, fortunately, we had a lot of non-amateurs, but for me, it was, I didn't know what I didn't know. That was the biggest risk because here we are going into this massive enterprise and I don't know how to do this. And the way we mitigated that risk is I wanted to have at least one person with prior games experience in every function. Um, and it didn't have to be a managing director of that function, uh, but many times it was. But we just needed to have that infusion of talent and expertise and experience. So we wanted a balance of great leaders, uh, very talented people who just uh, are motivated and can work hard, but also with that experiential knowledge. So I remember going in and seeing Tom Krzyzewski and we're talking about accreditation. I didn't even know what it was. And after meeting with Tom for about an hour, I said, wow, I don't have to worry about this area at all. He's got it nailed. I just need to, need to give him the resources, the technology and tools, and he's got it done. And so that, that was just um, one example of so many experiences I had in meeting with the people. The second big risk that we had was just financial. We all know that because David D'Alessandro, the CEO of John Hancock during this scandal, said any CEO who uh, is going to sponsor the Olympic Games deserves to be fired. And we had a big budget gap and we had to work through that. And everybody came together to, to help close that gap, which we did. So th those were two of the biggest ones. And then finally, once we were, as we were closing the financial gap, for me, it was just operations. How do we make sure that the operations are just rock solid and deep? And that comes with people, extensive planning, cross-functional integration. And we did that so well that when, as we were going into the games, we knew we were going to succeed. We knew we had it nailed. And the people were so confident. They knew their jobs so well. We'd gone through contingency planning. They had it done. And I knew that we were going to do really well. And I contrast that with another games that I was called after our games to go help them 10 months before their games. They're going through a crisis. And it was so depressing because the people there knew that they were going to fail. They knew they didn't have the resources. They knew that their planning was not deep enough. And it was like so challenging. And I contrasted that with our experience 
where we were ready, where we were ready to welcome the world and we were looking forward to ex excited about it. And it turned out to be the experience of a lifetime. Well, it's interesting, Fraser. It's challenging enough for an organizing committee to overcome one seismic event. And certainly that was the case with the scandal, right? Um, that had a significant impact on revenues and, and that changed the trajectory of uh, Salt Lake's preparations. Uh, but then you're hit with a second seismic event, which was 9-11. How did you deal with that one? Well, I remember in August of 2001 going into Mitt's office and saying, Mitt, I think we're going to hit this one out of the park. Uh, our operations are so deep. Our people are so capable. It looks like we're going to have a budget surplus. So um, it, we're, we're really confident. And he said, that's great. Let's not tell anybody. We want to manage expectations that if we can barely pull this off, it's a success. But then the next time I remember speaking with him, it was on the phone. And it was right after he had driven past the Pentagon, he was in a convertible and there was smoke coming into his car from uh, the explosion at the Pentagon. And we were talking about how are we going to keep people safe? And during that day, there was so much going on. People were asking, should the games be canceled? We had a call with the IOC and, and, Mitt and I had deep conversations of, okay, this is now different. This is such a horrific tragedy that we need to make sure we keep people safe first and foremost. And then number two, this is going to be a healing event for the world. And so we need to do our work. So that was a Tuesday and I actually heard it as I was driving into work. And then we went into my office and, and I had a television there and many people came in and we let people go home that day. Um, a lot of introspection and a lot of phone calls with Mitt. Mitt couldn't get back because everything, all the planes were grounded. He couldn't get back for a few days. Um, but that Friday, I remember we uh, had a meeting, Doug Arnott and I, with uh, all the security agencies, the lead of the various security agencies, including Secret Service, FBI, FEMA, the military, local law enforcement, et cetera. And I challenged them, to, everybody to go and spend the next week looking at our security plan, where it need to be enhanced given this uh, tragedy and meet again in a week. So Doug and I spent literally three days going through every element of our security plan. And fortunately, it was already an excellent plan. I mean, great, great work had gone into that. But we did have 22 recommendations, uh, things we could do. The following Friday, we got together and I led the meeting. I asked each agency to come to list the recommendations they had. And as they went around the room, they said, man, we've just been our heads down dealing with the fallout. Nobody had any recommendations except for Secret Service, who is the lead agency, and they had a few really good ideas. So we went, Doug and I went through our list with them. 
we vetted those. And what I realized, a lot of these agencies are better at reacting than they are at planning. Uh, we took that plan. We integrated uh, the suggestions that Doug and I had and the Secret Service had, and it lifted us uh, to a new level of security. But it built on a wonderful foundation that without that foundation, I mean, we're four and a half months out, it would have been too late. But we already had a good plan and added a few things in. Were there, I mean, if you look back at the at the games, they went off safely. So I guess uh, from a security perspective, uh, you could say that the plan worked, right? The the security was, was okay during the games and uh, any serious incidents were avoided, I guess is the, the proper term. What else uh, did the, did uh, 9-11 have impact on the financials, on the revenues or the expenditures aside from security? Yes, yes, it did, because we started having ticket cancellations. We started having countries that said their teams were not coming to the United States. We had sponsor cancellations in terms of coming with hotel rooms and things like that. That was the initial reaction. Uh the world had been shocked in a unique way, and it, it was very understandable. So then Mitt and I and others would talk to these different people, reassure them, tell them about our plans, our enhancements to the plans. And over time, people got over the shock and embraced these games like no other in a way where they were enthusiastic to be there for this moment of healing for the world. And I'll never forget one of, one of the great memories I have of the games was in opening ceremonies when flag from the twin towers was brought in and we had complete silence from such a large crowd. The only thing you could hear was, the military chopper in the background. And I, th I think there was a camera on that too, but you could hear the reverence and then the singing of our national anthem was just a special time. It felt like healing for the world. And that was really a culmination that yes, we've brought this together. Our team has made this happen and now let's go have the best games in history. Which, uh, by many accounts, you did. <laughs> the The games were fantastic, and uh, many people have commented on the thrilling performances. There were some really memorable uh, moments with the athletes. And then the closing ceremony was a huge amount of fun. It was a giant party for the athletes and everybody involved. And then it ends. The games are over. What's next for Frazier? Well, a uh, little story there. So, um, uh <laughs> I worked um, pretty hard during that time, as did everybody, but I also enjoyed a lot of events. Because we were so prepared, we were able to enjoy the games. And I had my family with me at many events, and it was just sharing something that was so precious to me with so many others. And I loved going to the venues and seeing our volunteers and our employees. It was just a delight. Um, and then I had an all-nighter one time when we had a lighting problem at um, the Salt Lake Ice Center because of uh, for the exhibition. But we got that resolved. By the time closing ceremonies came, 
um, I was dead tired. And in fact, um, that night I came down with a temperature of 103. I'd lost 20 pounds and I was in bed for four days after closing ceremonies, just recovering. And meanwhile, we're preparing for Paralympics. And so I'm monitoring this from my uh, bed, uh, trying to heal. And then we go through Paralympics. And one of my favorite events was the men's sludge hockey game that uh, triple overtime shootout. I mean, it was just an amazing experience and just loved every minute of that. Then post games, um, we wrapped up uh, in six months, what has taken other host cities years to do. Uh, We were so well organized, such great people that we wrapped up in six months and I was looking for a job. I didn't have anything lined up. It was interesting. One of the times that Mitt and I had a discussion during the games, uh, Mitt asked me, well, what are you going to do after the games? And I don't, I said, I don't know. What are you going to do? And he said, it doesn't really matter. Let's just get this right. And the future will take care of itself. And that became our mantra. Now with Mitt, it became, okay, the governor, uh, things sprang on him. For me, it was starting a private equity firm, a new called Sorensen Capital, where we uh, raised funds to invest in companies, primarily in Utah. And we raised 250 million and invested that. And now we're on our fourth fund and it's been a great legacy of success. Well, it sounds like everything worked out in the end, um, including a surplus, right? Which uh, then was used to fund the ongoing operation of a Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation, which uh, uh, continues to this day. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the the genesis of that and how it has really created a foundation for potential future games here in Salt Lake? Well, we uh, were so efficient with our games that we did a fantastic job, yet we did it economically. We had a $50 million projected cushion that we wanted to have going in. I realized about six months out, it's really hard to spend money that late in the games. And I told Scott Gibbons to just go wild with all the uh, building wraps and big fireworks from China and different things like that, because it's hard to spend money that late. So we took, took that up a notch. But in spite of that, not only did we have a $50 million surplus, we had a million cash surplus after paying the USOC about $10 million, their share of the surplus, and after doing a legacy plaza for $12 million. So we had a surplus of about $100 million, but the most important part of that was the $76 million that went to the Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation to keep our venues active. We are unique in the world in that every single Uh, Olympic venue is highly active and busier than ever before. And I give Colin Hilton uh, a lot of credit for that. And in the early years, Mark Lewis and, and Kathy uh, Priestner, and then John Benyon to keep that legacy alive. And today it's just amazing what's happened. And I think it is a perfect story for the Olympics. The games aren't just 17 days. No, it's generations. And that's what we have here. And it's such a a blessing that that had turned out that way.
Well, Fraser, I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, you've very faithfully answered my questions, but I know you came prepared to talk about some things. Are there items on your list that we have not yet covered before we get to our home stretch? Yeah, uh, there's one other thing that uh, I'd like to uh, tell my uh, devoted team members and friends is that um, life is a constant journey of learning. And I learned so much at the Olympics, so much from my colleagues. Uh, it's, it's just amazing to me what I was able to learn from them. Uh, the journey goes on. And five years ago, I was driving to work on SR92, uh, which is a commuter lane that goes from Alpine out to Lehigh. And I just got onto the commuter lane and all of a sudden I had this massive pain in my chest and I knew immediately what it was. It was a heart attack. What I've discovered years and years later is I have a genetic blood disorder that is, I mean, I was a time bomb waiting to happen with a heart attack. And so I have this massive heart attack. I, I have massive pain, uh, nausea. I fear I'm going to pass out and I just want to get off the road to be able to deal with it. And so I'm going through rush hour traffic and I navigate through it and I get, I say, okay, the outlet malls at eight o'clock in the morning aren't going to be open. So I'm going to go there. And I went, I went right to the uh, edge of those and there was no traffic, nobody there. And I was in so much pain and I jumped out of my truck and I'm on the phone on the speaker phone with the 911 operator and she, I'm doubled over in pain. She's asking me, where are you? And I can't talk because I'm in so much pain. And I'm thinking, okay, this might be it. At that moment, one vehicle approaches me from the other direction, pulls up, rolls down his window and, and says, can I help you? And it's my son-in-law. And it just blows my mind that here he is. And it's a one in a million chance that he would be there. Uh, sometimes um, I think God reaches down in special ways. Um, but for me, it, he saved my life. I would have been dead. So I go to the hospital and I have um, a stent put in. Uh, I suffered a lot of heart damage. My heart is only functioning at about 60% right now. <clears throat> And so I go through this experience and I'm grateful to be alive, but I, I went into this massive depression. Um, why me? I'm a healthy six, 60 year old. Um, this just, my life is over. My heart is damaged. Can I even ski again or do things like that? And I'd never really been depressed in my life. And I went through a really, really deep depression for several weeks. Finally, I pulled out of it because I realized I was looking at the world exactly wrong. I was the luckiest guy in the world because I was still alive. And I learned three lessons out of this. One is that every day is a gift. Uh, anytime we could go, we ought to treasure each day, make it special. Every day is a gift. The second thing I learned from that is relationships are everything. And the way you build them is through kindness. So just extend kindness to everybody who's around you, no matter who they are or how they're treating you. Just be kind. And three, 
give meaningful service. Uh, service makes life meaningful. Always be doing something to help somebody. Those are three things that I took away from that experience. It was an inflection point in my life. I half retired at that point in time, and I've been enriching my life ever since and helping people. And it was a great learning experience for me. Well, I appreciate you very much sharing that very personal story. It's interesting how you took some very, very um, sour lemons <laughs> and you turned them into some lemonade, right? By flipping this whole experience on its head and saying, well, I've got to learn something out of this. And if you learn something from it, then I guess it's worth it, right? Yeah. Just one last thought is as I was going through that process of flipping from depression to joy, I realized happiness is a choice. Stuff happens to each of us every day. Some of it's good and some of it's challenging and how we react to that is up to us. Other people don't make us unhappy. Uh, we choose to make ourselves happy. And I'm going to recommend a book. I hate. Here we go. Solve for Happy. It's a wonderful book and has taught me a lot. And I highly recommend it to anybody because life is a journey and it should be a journey of happiness. And we should be an agent for our own happiness and an agent for happiness in the lives of those around us. And I think that's what happens, right? You, uh, uh, when you find that personal happiness, your natural inclination is for your loved ones or your friends or your neighbors or your community to also feel that joy that you felt. And thank you for sharing the recommendation. Listeners, please uh, look up that book. Maybe we can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or something. Fraser, again, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we typically end these podcasts with three assignments, and the first assignment has to do with music. So uh, is there a particular song or a, a group, a musical artist that reminds you of your time at SLOC? Whenever you hear it, even today, it takes your mind right back to your time uh, working for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. Yes. Early in my tenure at SLOC, somebody showed me a video of Gloria Stefan singing Reach at the Atlanta Games. And I just love that song. And so I got a copy of the track and I play it in my car. And because it's about Olympic aspirations and reaching higher, um, which is what we were all endeavoring to do. And so that that was a theme, I think, for us and uh, something that I still remember to this day. Well, fantastic. We'll try to find that track on Spotify, uh, Gloria Stefan's Reach. And if we can find it, we'll put it on our Spotify playlist. All the tracks that everyone has nominated are on that uh, playlist. So thank you very much, Frazier, for giving us that very worthy recommendation. Uh, we'll now change to food. So is there a particular restaurant that you like to frequent when you were working there at the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? Yes, it was. Um, I think it was two and a half blocks south on Second East. And I think it was called the bakery or something like that, where they made these delicious sandwiches and they were fantastic. And I would go there probably every other day to have sandwiches. And there were a group of us that would go and I just loved that food. Well, several of our people have, rec have recommended Gourmandise. Was it that gourmand? Was it that bakery or was it a different bakery just called the bakery? I don't, I don't remember the name, but whatever was two and a half blocks south on Second East, that's it. All right. Excellent. The bakery. We'll put that on the map. We have a map on the website uh, of all the restaurants that everybody has nominated. And hopefully when everything subsides with COVID, we can actually go and visit some of those hangouts again. To wrap us up, do you have a favorite memory of the games? It could be a competition, something behind the scenes. It could have been 
uh, in the early days of preparations or during the games time period itself, uh, any goosebump moment that you'd like to share with us? I, I've mentioned a couple already, but what for me gave me the greatest joy was going around to the venues and seeing our team and talking with our team members, whether they were the uh, GM, uh, the sport people, the volunteers, because that is the fabric of the games. That gave me more joy than anything else and working side by side with those people, which was the pinnacle of my career. And I hope in a future date that we may have the opportunity to do it again. I echo that aspiration and thank you once again, Frazier, very much sincerely for taking the time to share all of these stories with us. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. And Frazier, once again, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome.